Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to First uh, Corinthians chapter 12. Surprise. Okay. Here we go. First <laughs> Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to actually continue from the middle of the, uh, the chapter, starting with verse 12 of chapter 12. Before we do, I just want to kind of recap where we've been and what we've been doing. Is, is, is Paul has been addressing many issues in the Corinthian church. Chapter 12 began a focus on spiritual gifts. Now, it's apparent from what he says in this letter that the spiritual gifts were prevalent in the city of Corinth. Apparently all of them. However, we'll find out in the next couple of chapters as we move forward that uh, they believed themselves to be superior if they apparently used one particular gift above all of the others. And that happened to have been the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, last week, we spent the whole time just on that one topic, talking about the gift of the Spirit that is known as the gift of tongues, and how in the book of Acts it was demonstrated to be at least an evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a subsequent occurrence to their having gotten saved and received the Spirit of God dwelling in them at the moment of conversion. The Bible does distinguish between the initial infilling of the Holy Spirit where he dwells in the believer at the time of conversion when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior we regenerated then when we're born again the Spirit of God dwells in us he always has been with us wherever we were before Christ uh, because he was with us wooing us and drawing us to Christ that was his purpose in being with us during that time before Christ. But we didn't know he was there, yet he was. And he still is with the unbelievers in that same context, drawing them to the Lord, convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's his ministry to the outside world. But his ministry to the church takes on a different form. And that's what we looked at the last time, where he comes upon the believer for empowerment for certain ministry uh, in the church, the Spirit does manifest himself in this event that we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a subsequent to, at least most of the time, the initial infilling. It can happen at the same time, as we saw in the case of Cornelius' house, but in other cases it happened after. And also, the Bible talks about being filled with the Spirit, and that's always associated with what is, again, known as the coming upon the believer or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's alternatively referred to as the filling of the Holy Spirit. And you find that in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4. They were already baptized in the Holy Spirit. They already had received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, for instance, but yet subsequent to that initial filling, they were filled again in chapters 2 and again in chapter 4. And so this filling can happen more than once. This baptism of the Holy Spirit is an indication by the Spirit that He is willing 
to pour himself upon the believer for service, for empowerment. And that's exactly why we believe and teach that there are three distinct means by which the Holy Spirit will operate in the life of the believer. He's with us, he is in us, and he comes upon us. In chapter 12, we saw at the beginning of the chapter many other gifts that were mentioned. They're not all of the gifts that are available to us by the Spirit. We see another list of gifts of the Spirit in Romans chapter 12 and also in Ephesians chapter 4. And so there are gifts that the Spirit chooses to give His people within the body ministry. And the body is all of the believers who come together as we gather in an assembly. We're there to worship the Lord. We're there to hear from God, to study His Word, and to praise Him. And it is up to the Spirit of God whether or not He moves among us during those collective periods of time when we gather together to manifest any of the gifts or all of the gifts as he chooses. And that's what we looked at over the last couple of weeks. So if you haven't got that down and if it's confusing to you or if there's a matter of concern for you, uh, don't let it be troublesome. Does the Spirit of God move in this way in the church today? It is true that some denominations teach that no, they do not allow or expect that the Spirit of God would move in regard to the ministry of the gifts of the Spirit as given by the Apostle Paul, especially in chapter 12, and especially with regard to the speaking in tongues and interpretations. However, there's another group of denominations, the Pentecostals, the Charismatic Ministries, who believe very strongly in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the church body ministry, and they tend to overemphasize the gift of tongues, as was the case with Corinth, for instance. And they teach that if you don't speak in tongues, then you aren't truly saved. There are a faction of charismatic churches who teach such things. That's heretical. That's not found in the Word of God. And so we have to be careful. Uh, try to find a balance in your own mind as you read through the scriptures, as you study the scriptures. It is right for all of us to pray to God for the Spirit. And he's willing to give those gifts as we pray willingly to receive them. In fact, one of the things that Paul says to Timothy, for instance, Timothy had received a gift by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, by Paul's own ministry to Timothy. And Paul told Timothy to stir up the gift that was in him. So I contend that each of us, having been filled with the Spirit at the time of conversion, have the option of praying for more of the Spirit in our lives. And if we do so, the Father does love to give good gifts unto his children. There's no question in my mind, you read it in Luke's Gospel, that why would the Father of Heaven not give you the Spirit? And he compares the worldly Father, who wouldn't do anything wrong to his son or daughter asking for 
bread? Would he give that son or daughter a stone? No, the answer is no. Well, then how much more then would your heavenly Father give of the Spirit? Now, when you were born again, you didn't have any knowledge, I don't believe, of the fact that you could ask at that time for the Spirit. You were asking for salvation, forgiveness of your sins. So when Paul and Luke in Luke's Gospel talk about the asking for a spiritual event to take place in your life, that would be something that you'd have to agree, I believe, would require the believer asking for it as a subsequent request after conversion. So I focus on that just to remind us all that these gifts are available to all simply by asking. Now, if you choose not to think that it's right for you to have a gift or to ask for a gift, that's simply your choice, and I don't condemn anyone. I, I would not recommend having that attitude, but I do understand that some people are just simply not ready for that, and that's okay. Uh, there are a lot of people who, because of preconceived ideas, are perhaps a little bit fearful of the gifts. What if perhaps if I ask for the gift from the Holy Spirit and, and a demon comes and enters in? Well, you can rest assured that's never, ever possible because the Holy Spirit will not share his residence with any demon. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. So when you ask for something that is supernatural, you can be sure that it will be a good thing that you receive if you do ask in earnest. Just to share my own personal story, I have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I have received the gift of tongues long ago. But it wasn't right away. I was a believer for a good period of time, and I was in a church where the gifts of the Spirit were manifest, and they were encouraged for people to ask for the gifts. And I attended several meetings where I went forward to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and nothing happened. I remember when I did get that experience, I was at home. I was praying late at night. I don't even know where Sandy was. I don't think she was home. Perhaps she was in the hospital after having delivered Jared, I think. And uh, I was alone in the house. And uh, I was praying. And I was seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I was praying fervently for a good period of time on my knees before the Lord. And finally, I kind of gave up. I said, well, I guess it's just not for me. I got up from where I was praying. I went into my bedroom. I sat on my bed. And as soon as I sat down on my bed, I was just simply overwhelmed with the presence of God. And I just fell back on my back, praising the Lord in a language I did not know. It wasn't something that I was trying to make happen. It just came flowing out of me, and I couldn't stop it. That was what I experienced. Sandy also had experienced something very similar, although she wasn't actually seeking for the baptism at the time she received it. We were at a breakfast, a prayer breakfast, and at the end of the prayer breakfast, there was a teaching that somebody did. I don't remember who it was, but after the teaching, we were getting ready to leave, and the girl that was sitting next to Sandy turned to Sandy, and she had a word of knowledge. And she said, Sandy, I believe the Lord has spoken to me that he wants to give you the gift of the Spirit. And she laid her hands on Sandy's shoulder, and immediately Sandy began speaking in tongues. Now, 
Those are just examples of our own experience, and I'm sure there are others as well within our own body that perhaps would be able to vocalize their own experience, but it doesn't mean that any one of us who have received that gift or any other gift of the Holy Spirit are more spiritual than anybody who thinks they've perhaps not received. But I suggest to you, all of you, that each of you have indeed received a gift of the Holy Spirit. It may not have been manifest in your life just yet, or if it was, perhaps you didn't even know it was happening. Others may have taken note of it. But the point is, there are other gifts, and they all are supernatural gifts, that are given by the Spirit, and it's always as He wills. We looked at that over uh, the course of the last uh, few weeks, and I want to repeat that again in verse 11 of chapter 12, before we read what's coming in chapter 12, verse 12 and following. Read verse 11 again with me. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. So, this is what we must keep in mind, that it's the Spirit of God who chooses to manifest those gifts as He wills in the body. Now, we are a small body, and perhaps we haven't seen a lot of the evidence of the Spirit moving in such a way in our assemblies when we gather together. But I submit to you that there are some of those gifts already functioning in the body. Perhaps not the special vocal gifts, perhaps not the miracle gifts, or the uh, the, the gifts of um, prophecy, or some of the other gifts that are uh, perhaps observed by other places. But I know that I've seen the gift of the Holy Spirit manifest in our church through many people's activities within the body of Christ. The body of Christ is what we'll be focusing on tonight. And it's essential that we understand that we, as a body, need to function in a way that allows for the Spirit to move. And Paul does talk about this because the Corinthian church was far from that. Remember, he called them carnal Christians. Although they had all the spiritual gifts, they were short in none of the gifts, Paul said in chapter 1, they were carnal Christians, he said in chapter 3. The reason? Because they were mis handling the things of God. They were mistreating their privileges as Christians. They were putting themselves above others. They were not edifying the body, but they were in their knowledge getting puffed up. And Jesus and Paul both condemn those who would puff themselves up above any other believer. No one believer is greater than the other, regardless if that believer has been a recipient of the spiritual gifts or not. And that's one of the things that we'll see Paul addresses here in the remainder of chapter 12. So let's begin to read, beginning with verse 12 of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, where it says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Now I have to take a moment 
for the final word regarding baptizing. Notice that he says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Well there, now some people take that word baptized and use that word in an incorrect way to imply that you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion. And so any reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not of any value to the believer today. And that again is misinformation. The word baptized is a Greek word, baptizo, which actually means identify with. And it's used in that way with regard to water baptism, with regard to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as it is in this particular case here, talking about the initial indwelling of the Spirit into all believers. We're baptized into one body, into Christ. We became believers in Christ Jesus, and we became members of that body through what Paul describes here as a baptism or identification with Christ in this way. So don't confuse this reference to baptism in the Holy Spirit with other references that are subsequent to that initial moment of conversion. So he says again, one spirit did it. We're all baptized into one body. That's when we became believers and we have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Keep that in mind. Paul is here saying that the body consists of very numerous and distinct and different members. He's going to go into great detail about that. For instance, in verse 15, he says, Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. So Paul is here saying, look, you might be a foot or some other member of the body and you're not satisfied with your position in the body because, well, it's kind of unstately or uncomely or little used in the body. At least in your mind's sake, uh, set, there is maybe less use of your position in the body as a member of the body than somebody else who is of a higher caliber in your eyes. Uh, the eye or the ears or the mouth, you know, they certainly would be more important than the foot. After all, the foot is the lowliest of all of the members of the body. And uh, unfortunately, the foot is kind of stuck inside some covering and you're not very well exposed, perhaps, or seen by other members. Well, that would give credence to some to think, I'm not really a part of the body, but that's absolutely wrong thinking. And that's what Paul is saying here. Yes, that foot is still a part of the body. And he mentions also the eye or the ear. You know, if I were an eye only and I had no other body parts, that would be really quite freaky. We all need to realize that the body is made up of many different members. And each member has value. 
equal value. And he's going to be talking about that in very soon in his discussion with regard to the body members. So don't think less of yourself or think you're less important because you're not one of the more comely members of the body. That's what Paul is saying in that passage we just read. Then he goes on and says in verse 21, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. So if you think a foot is not a thing that is important to God, read it again. He gives greater honor to that one that thinks himself or herself of less importance, so that we all of us can be equal in value to God. And that's the way he is putting it here. So in the first hand, he says, you are important if you think yourself of no value. On the other hand, he says, if you think yourself of greater value, then you look again because you're not any more important than anybody else in the body. There are a couple of other things that I want to point out with regard to the body as we move forward. And before we do, I, I just kind of was thinking um, earlier in the day, back when I was much younger, and I don't remember when they first came out, but you must remember Mr. Potato Head. Well, Mr. Potato Head was a toy that and well, it was made famous by the story, Toy Story that was uh, famously produced recently. Uh, but Mr. Potato Head was an actual toy that was available, and when it was purchased, Mr. Potato Head came in pieces. The head itself, and then all of the attaching parts. And the toy was made so that it would be great fun for the child to take each part and assemble Mr. Potato Head so that he would have arms and legs and eyes and a nose and a mouth and ears. Well, I guess I should speak perhaps for the men more than the ladies in the audience tonight. But I'm pretty sure that most of the guys could say honestly that when they, if they did have any access to a Mr. Potato Head, they probably put the ear in the nose hole or the eye hole. And they probably put the mouth in the ear hole. That's just because you could do it. And it was funny. It looked weird, but it was funny. Now, I'm sure you ladies didn't do it that way. You probably, all of you, assembled Mr. Potato Head and Mrs. Potato Head, if you got her, exactly as it was intended by the original designer. Well, the designer of our body is God. And we should never play around with trying to make the foot fit where the mouth goes, or where the eye goes, or put the eye where the foot goes. God says we're all of equal value and we all have a place in the body and that's where God intends for us to be. Also, I want to remind us that where Paul talks about the uncomely or unseen 
um, or perhaps the modest parts of our body are covered. Well, you remember, we have been told in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, to put on the whole armor of God. Now, when the Paul the Apostle tells us to put on the whole armor, he's telling us that we should be clothed in the armor that protects us from danger. And most of the time, if you look at the illustrations that you can find online about Roman armor, you will see a very common thing. The most vital organs, the most um, organs that are, are most susceptible to damage and threat of life are those which get covered. The breastplate covers the the front of the body where the heart, kidneys, liver, and stomach, you know, the internal organs that are, if they were to be damaged, would be very likely to cause death. The helmet covers the head so that a blow to the head uh, might not be a life-threatening blow. Other parts of the body are covered as well. The shins, for instance are covered with a, a special leather protector. The feet are covered with sandals. All of these are for the purpose of protecting the body parts that are susceptible to either injury from an oncoming enemy or in the case of the sandals to protect the feet from getting cut up on the shards that would be laid before the armies uh, by the enemy so that they could slow down the army's approach. All of these things to say that the body is important to God and he provides protection for all of the body parts. And he is very concerned as much as he is for the eye, he's very concerned about the foot or the hand or the toes. Keep that in mind. There's also the reason I believe that Paul started down this path was because of the fact that as regarding the spiritual gifts, again, the Corinthian church thought it was more important that they would be seen speaking in tongues than any of the other gifts. It was a more important gift to them. And Paul is here saying, no, just like the body members are important, all of them, so also are the gifts. Every one of them are important. So he hasn't really diverted from his discussion with regard to the spiritual gifts. He's just giving here an illustration by using body parts to demonstrate how important it is to God and how important it should be for us that we as one body and members of that body, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, whether male or female, we've been all made to drink into that one spirit and we have become one body together, though many different members. So that's always what Paul has been focusing on here and always what we should be mindful of as we move forward in our study of God's Word. We're many members, and we are different, but we have a unity in Christ through the Spirit of God who dwells in us. And as far as God is concerned, all the members have the same care one for another. If we do that, then we're in good shape. 
Now, he says that because of what he says next. In verse 26, he says, If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. This is what I refer to oftentimes as body ministry. When we come together in the church setting, and I, I want to remind you, when I refer to church, I'm not referring to the building we gather in. I'm referring to the body of Christ. We are the church. We are, all of us, members of the body of Christ, the church. The building that we attend church ministry in is just that, a building. We could just as easily meet in a tent. We could just as easily meet in private homes. But we are the church who gathers together wherever we come together. And when one member suffers, we all should be suffering with that one. I found that to be the case over and over again as I've ministered in this church ministry that God has given me here and elsewhere, where people of God have been mindful of certain other believers who are struggling with a physical infirmity or a financial difficulty or a crisis situation in their life, and they come together with that individual and they pray with them. They try to meet that person's need. They try to help them out as much as they can. They encourage them. That's body ministry. When one member suffers, other members should be also willing to enter into that suffering as well. That's where we come together and we make a difference in each other's lives and in the way others outside of the church view us. And also, when one member is honored, then all the members rejoice together with him. We're not to be jealous of somebody getting great favor from either God or from the outside world even, but when that happens, we should rejoice with that person. He received a promotion. Let's praise the Lord together with him. She was blessed with some kind of special gift that, that she wasn't expecting. Let's rejoice with her and, and thank the Lord for that blessing. That's body ministry. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 26. If one member suffers again, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Verse 27 continues and says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. Now here comes a teaching from the apostle that has had many, many different interpretations. And I'm not here to tell you I've got all the answers for these things. I just want to read the scripture and try to explain as best I can what I believe it might be saying to us today. So read carefully with me. Paul is saying, and God has appointed these in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Now, in that one verse, he seems to be implying that there is a preferential order of special gifts that Paul sees here as being more important than other gifts. I personally do not believe that is what Paul is saying here. Even though he uses words like first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, that doesn't necessarily mean order of importance, but order of need. And there's certainly 
a difference there that I hope you can understand. I probably will not do a very good job of explaining, but I'll do my best. What I think he's trying to say here is that the apostles were first in the church because they were appointed by the Lord to be the ones who would give us the word of God. They would be the ones who walked with Jesus. They were first in that sense. And prophets also came after them, enforcing, reinforcing what the apostles had been saying. And so they were following the apostles in that sense. Uh, And does that mean that there are not apostles today or prophets today? Well, certainly not in the original sense in which they were at that time manifest. In other words, there were 12 apostles following Jesus. One of them turned away, which gave them only 11. And then they chose to have Matthias join them as the 12th apostle. And then Paul comes along and he's appointed to be an apostle by God. So now there's actually 13. Some would exclude Matthias because Paul was the appointed apostle and Matthias was chosen by Lot. I'm not going to go down that path. But there are other apostles in the early church. Barnabas was considered an apostle, as was Silas, Timothy, and others. But the original 11 apostles who were with Jesus and Paul the apostle and perhaps Matthias They all saw Jesus. They all had been with Jesus. And that was a criterion for apostleship. Now, does that mean there are not apostles today? Certainly not self-proclaimed apostles. And there are some who make themselves to be apostles. Having authority like the authority of Scripture, that is not good theology. And if there's anyone who makes himself to be an apostle saying that he has such authority, he's a false apostle. And false prophets also are prevalent. And that doesn't mean that there are no true prophets. I believe that prophecy is speaking forth the word of God as well as foretelling the word of God. And a prophet can indeed be still in our midst, even in this present day. The ministry of prophets is forth-telling something from God. And I believe that that does happen in the church from time to time. I believe it's one of the gifts that can be and does get manifest by the Spirit. After that, of importance in the early church and in the church today, we need teachers. We need teachers to teach. And so that's, I guess, where I come in and others like me who have been called to be pastor teachers. And so we have received, I believe, a gift to do so. And if we haven't, we probably shouldn't be doing that. But these are also known as office gifts. And I'm not going to make that distinction either because there's nowhere in the Word of God that gives us that sense of making a distinction between office gifts and other kinds of gifts or categories of gifts. So Paul is really just saying here that this is how things started. And then he began then to focus on other gifts, the gifts of healings, helps, 
administrations, and varieties of tongues. Take note of the fact that two of those helps and administrations or governances are not in the original list of nine that we saw earlier in the chapter. So he's just adding other gifts and that tends, I believe, to convince me and I hope you that this is not an exclusive, all-inclusive list of gifts. And again, uh, there are other gifts mentioned in the scripture and they're found in Romans chapter 12 again in verse um, 12 or 4 rather of Romans and then in chapter 4 um, of Ephesians verse 12 and following or 11 and following are all apostles he says in verse 29 here is where another issue comes in that we need to address are all apostles are all prophets are all teachers are all workers of miracles do all have gifts of healings do all speak with tongues do all interpret He's asking these rhetorical questions with the expectation of an answer. And the answer he's expecting is no. So, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. So what's Paul saying? Basically, all he's saying here is, in the church, when we gather together, we're the body of Christ, and not all, every one of us has all of these gifts. Not one of us. He gives them severally as he wills. Individually as he wills. Some of us have perhaps been given more than one gift, but not all of them. And perhaps some of us never have received the gift of tongues. That's okay. Perhaps some of us never have been used by the Lord to interpret a gift of tongues. That's okay. Not all do. But that doesn't mean that they are excluded from being used in the church. With regard to speaking in tongues, many people look at this list in verse 29 and 30 and couple it with what he said in, chapter, in verse 28 and say, see, there's an order of gifts. Apostles are first and tongues are last. Well, if you look at the list again, tongues is not last. Interpretations last. So their thinking is skewered. However, I do want to emphasize that although I encourage all of us to seek to receive some gifts from the Lord as he chooses to give those gifts within the body of Christ, I'm not here to say that they have to be manifest in order for the church to be a successful and vibrant church. But I do want to tell you that I have seen some of these gifts in operation in our church body. Take a look again. One of the gifts in particular is a gift of helps. Not mentioned earlier in the passage that we read in the first uh, 
section of verse chapter 12, but mentioned here by Apostle Paul in verse 20, 28. Verse 28. The gifts of healing, helps, administrations, and variety of tongues. Verse 29. Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Do all have the gift of prophecy? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? No. However, I've seen helps. I've seen administrations. I've seen teachings. I've seen gifts of healing in the body today. I've seen discernment, not mentioned in this list, but mentioned earlier. And oh, how we need discernment of spirits. So, these are gifts that I believe are still in use by the Spirit of God as He chooses to give. And then after having, finally, we'll get to this last method, uh, last uh, point of focus. After having spoken about the body being many members and the gifts being all of them of value to God and use by God in the church, Paul ends chapter 12 with this one last verse. But earnestly desire the best gifts. Plural. In other words, we all of us as a body of believers should never despise any of the gifts. But we're to desire the best gifts. Now the construct in the original language gives us the sense in verse 31 that he's talking about to all of the body, not to individuals, but to all of the body. So he says, but you all must earnestly desire the best gifts. To the exclusion of none, desire the best gifts. What are the best gifts? The best gifts are those gifts that are needed for that particular situation which the body of Christ finds itself. Pastor Chuck Smith gave an example long ago, and I like the example. He talked about the fact that in his shop, on his workbench, he has several saws, or around his workbench. He's got a circular saw. He's got a jigsaw. He's got a hacksaw. He's got a handsaw. He's got a sawzall. And he says, what's the best saw to use? Well, of course, that depends on what the need is. If he needs to cut a pipe, he's probably going to use his hacksaw. If he needs to cut a circular hole in a piece of plywood, he's likely going to use his jigsaw. A circular saw doesn't do a very good job with that, and it would ruin the blade of a circular saw to cut a metal pipe. To rip through a wall for... Destruction purposes, like I guess what Charlie had been doing not too long ago, you use a sawzall. It's quick, it's efficient, it cuts through nails and two-by-fours and gets the job done. And you don't need to have a straight cut with something like that. You're destroying things. You're taking it apart. That's a good tool for that. So there's a good reason to use each of the tools. And if you try to use those tools in some other way for some other purpose the results are generally tragic. I like that illustration, and I think it fits quite well with regard to the gifts of the Spirit. 
And finally in 31, he introduces the topic of chapter 13. Simply by saying, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Notice that he doesn't say a more excellent gift. It's not a gift that he's going to be introducing in chapter 13. It is a fruit of the Spirit. There's a difference. And we'll look at that the next time we get together. It's an introduction to what Paul has already spoken of on more than one occasion. For instance, in chapter 8, in verse 1 of chapter 8, he said, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Yes, he's going to be talking about love. And it's a great chapter. Chapter 13 is the love chapter. Everybody knows it that way. The love chapter of 1 Corinthians is what we'll be looking at the next time. Not that we're departing from a study of the gifts. There's more to come. But Paul is saying this is something of great value to us, even more so than all of the gifts. If we don't have love, we're in trouble. And we'll look at that the next time. Till then, my friends, God bless. And keep praying for the Spirit to move in your life and mine. God bless.